Welcome to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Winogren. Welcome to the show that brings together government and industry leaders to accelerate government mission outcomes. On today's episode, we're going to be talking with two outstanding federal technology leaders who recently received ACT-IAC's 2023 Executive Leadership Awards. Our first guest today is Yemi Oshinaye, the Chief Information Officer at the Transportation Security Administration. And most important for today's show, Yemi is the 2023 ACT-IAC Government Executive Leadership Award winner bestowed in the spirit of John J. Frankie. Welcome to the show, Yemi, and congratulations. Thank you for having me, Dave, and uh, I'm honored to have uh, won the award. It's a pleasure. Very good. The awards were given out recently at ACT-IAC's Executive Leadership Conference at Imagination ELC. And, uh, and so we, it was great to celebrate in person, and we appreciate you being on the show. We're going to talk a little bit about leadership and your career. So let's start by reflecting back on your outstanding career. Tell us a little bit about your career journey. What led you to government service and some highlights of where that journey has taken you? Yeah, absolutely. So I always joke with folks, I'm a CIO, but I have a marketing degree and a Spanish minor. I fell in love with IT in college, uh, kind of followed that thread through a, a different number of careers. I, I did a little stint with the um, Sports Illustrated. I did a little stint uh, with a small benefits company. And then I ended up at EDS, where I actually, the, my IT career blossomed and I was supporting uh, USCIS immigration uh, before it was USCIS and then eventually became USCIS. Uh, that was important to me as both of my parents are immigrants. Uh, you know, it's, it's always feels really good when you can impact uh, a benefit that's going out to the public. And that was something I did for quite a long time. I uh, had a few stints in real estate and um, I just did a title uh, closed on homes for folks for a little while and then uh, went back into IT industry and then came back into the government as a Fed in 2012. And I think, you know, the career kind of took off from there. Uh, as I did uh, continue to work at USCIS, where we brought in Agile, uh, did a lot of really great things with cloud and revolutionized how you can automate delivery of applications in the federal government. And then um, my most recent career here at TSA. That's great. And I just want to say I was a communications major, communications and public relations as my undergraduate degree. So I appreciate your marketing degree. I, I think the, the degrees that help you do critical thinking and, and be able to engage with people are just super helpful as you get into the technology business. And my career, a little bit like yours, started in one place, ended up in the technology business, and I've never looked back. And you made a difference. And, and so now you're the TSA CIO. Tell us a little bit about that job. And what are some of the things that you and your team are working on? I will tell you, TSA is such a great place. It, it really is because of the part of the birth of DHS with 9-11 have its nexus being around flight and, and, and the tragedy that happened uh, on 9-11. Uh, the TSA mission is expansive. It's not just the checkpoints. Uh, there's compliance inspections. Uh, we put out security directives. Uh, and there's a lot of really good technology here. And it's been really great for me last year and a half helping to bring that together to support the mission. I will tell you a lot of the cool things we're doing right now is uh, working with, you know, partners within TSA on, on the touchless ex passenger experience, helping to make travel more seamless. Uh, and on the corporate side, you know, using mobile a lot more so that, you know, as we have a lot of folks in our mission space that have to be mobile, we're making sure that technology can support that mobility and bringing applications to the user. We're leaning in a lot on customer experience and user experience and trying to redefine how we use that, letting the customer drive technology. Because uh, I think it's really important 
you want to meet folks where they are so that technology works for them. And so we're, we're really, really pressing forward on that. And uh, one of the objectives that we have for 24 is speed to impact, uh, making sure that anything we do and any idea we have, we have the right resources and we can facilitate from ideation to delivery, you know, trying to increase that speed and remove things that, that don't let us get there that we may not need in the process. The, uh, the, the mobile world is such a fascinating development and it changes everything and it improves everything from customer experience to, you know, get, getting work done. But tell us a little bit more about like sort of the challenges and opportunities by that quick switch to a mobile world is bringing for you. Uh, I tell you, you know, I always say that that user demand or customer demand um, is really what drives things. The, the demand for mobile is great because, I mean, in our personal lives, I mean, if you drive a Tesla, your phone's your car keys, it's your alarm, it's your voice memo. <laughs> Sometimes we use it to make a voice call, <laughs> but but it does so much for you that, you know, when you come to work, you don't want to totally change your paradigm and, and, and we don't all just sit at a desk. So one of the challenges in the government space for us, though, is identity and access. Um, and we use a lot of, you know, we're using two-factor with our PIV and it, that doesn't work for all applications. So we're trying to make sure that we're using different two-factor authentication methods allows us to continue to, to help folks use mobile. And then there's the scalability is making sure that there's a mobile, if it's yours or the, or the company's, the government's mobile, that you can leverage it to do your job. So again, Security, cybersecurity, and, and identity are some of the challenges we face, but we're working on a lot of different solutions around that. I like that, meeting people where they are. What, it, what It's a great imperative. So as, as a technology leader in the federal government, you, you've been engaged on, I'll say, many of the top issues facing the government today. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on some of these crucial topics. Let's start with uh, IT modernization. Is it still a priority for federal agencies? <laughs> and if so, what's gone well and what still needs to be done? Yeah, it, it's definitely a priority. I, I think what we're trying to do is, is change the narrative of IT modernization. If we do the right things, you know, invest in automation, invest in on-demand infrastructure, an infrastructure that, you know, ha- is part of a managed service or, you know, a lot of folks call that cloud, is that we make sure that we modernize in place and we sustain that modernization in place. Then we're not chasing modernization because your challenge becomes is when you let things get into a legacy standpoint, and then you have to find out how to update it. By the time you update it, it's already legacy again. But if you modernize in place, maintain that modern modern status and constantly look ahead. And and honestly, the user will drive you towards modernization. Most users have such a demand for what they're doing and that demand involves new ways of doing things that you'll stay modern. So it's bringing all those practices into place so we don't have to look back. Yeah, excellent. The modernization in place, like dealing with legacy. And as you point out, it's not just the legacy infrastructure, it's all those legacy systems and, and, and the voice of the customer. What a huge help in trying to do that. Embracing customer experience and, and I'll say also embracing digital transformation are also prominent topics today. We've already sort of touched on this customer idea a couple of times already. So why don't we press on a little bit more there and share with us some advice on improving customer service while also advancing the digital transformation agenda. Our last episode was focused on the customer experience imperative. And, and, you know, digital transformation done well can be hugely helpful. Digital transformation not done well can impact customer experience. So the importance of, I'll say, CX and DX initiatives complementing one another. Some thoughts there. Well, I think they're hand in hand. You know, you know, if you've been in IT for a while and you've been in kind of system development, you remember the days and when you build a system, 
And then the user said, well, I needed to do this. And then you say, well, the system before that didn't do that. Well, then the, then the user said, but I do that. So it's, it's taking the system and not just being the bits and bytes being the system, but the human interaction, the, the, the notes that you're writing your stickies to walk from one other computer to another computer because you couldn't have one system on one screen, you had two. So that, you know, digital transformation is really bringing the systems into one place and having the, the, the ecosystem around the user support the decisions they make. Because sometimes a system is as much the sneaker net as it is the computer itself. And that is digital transformation. That's taking everything and seeing if we can get it in the digital space and it meets the arm movements, the eye motions, the thought process between one system, you know, submitting a process to another system, providing a decision point. And as you bring those things together and it, it, it supports and supplements the user and the user that they're interacting with, that's digital transformation. Cybersecurity also remains a national imperative, and yet so much has changed in terms of approach and priorities in recent years, the virtual world, the move to mobile, the customer imperative, right, that allows you not to just lock things down, but to do security in a way that allows more people to be engaged. What, what are some thoughts you'd like to share with the audience about advancing cybersecurity? Yeah, it's, it's having everyone have a cybersecurity mindset uh, in this position as I got into CIO. It, cybersecurity became my imperative as well as, uh, as software development, as well as infrastructure. So we have to make sure when we're building, when we have the idea, the first thought is how does cybersecurity fit into this as well? What are the things that are already cybersecure that you can leverage when we're building the next solution? Uh, and then from a user perspective, because, you know, keep in mind, most of the cyber breaches and the cybersecurity issues that we have come from social engineering come from simply um, having credentials taken and being used somewhere else. So educating the user as much as making uh, the system safe it becomes a cyber imperative. You know, attacks have only increased uh, and there are adversaries that want data so they can use data somewhere else to get into something. And then we need to protect critical infrastructure. So it becomes you know, imperative that we stay on top of it, but it only will happen that way with education as well as making the system safe. It's a long game and a complicated web. And the, and the breach yes. here leads to the data used for other purposes. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation with Yemi Oshinaye, the TSA CIO. I am Dave Wondergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ActIAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with ActIAC. I'm Dave Wintergren, and on today's episode, we're talking with some of the recipients of the 2023 ACT-IAC Executive Leadership Awards. On this segment, we continue our conversation with Yemi Oshinaye, the Chief Information Officer of the Transportation Security Administration, and the recipient of the 2023 ACT-IAC Government Executive Leadership Award, bestowed in the spirit of John J. Frankie. When we went to the break, we were talking with Yemi about uh, top topics in the federal tech market, and clearly no conversation on top topics would be complete without diving into AI a little bit. You've been a big proponent, Yemi, in, in understanding and embracing AI. What are you seeing in terms of adoption of artificial intelligence and other new technologies in the federal market, and what should we be thinking about to accelerate those efforts? Uh, yeah, I, I think what, what we're seeing right now is the newest form of AI getting everyone excited again about AI. Uh, one of the things that a lot of professionals like to point out is it's been around for quite some time. 
uh, machine learning algorithms have been a part of systems and predictability and, and uh, making sure that we have automation for a while. But now with generative AI, that's when the excitement comes in. It's not just about predictability, but it's about putting the technology in the user's hands. Because in the past year, we've seen high school students be able to create a song, create a beat, produce music, publish it to the web and have followers. So they almost become like musicians with the um, tools at their fingertips. And that's because the technology was made easy to use and it was made powerful enough to use by the general public. And most importantly, from a customer experience and user experience perspective, it's intuitive. So you don't need an instruction booklet. You can use it, teach someone else to use it and, and actually collaborate around it. So we see that now, how do we replicate that in the federal government so we can move as fast and supporting business value? So I think it's where the excitement comes in. AI has been around for a while. Uh, a lot of the models we're using, the foundational models and, and the technology isn't really new. What's been great is making it easier to use. It is it's a world of promise. And uh, I love the idea of making sure it's intuitive, easy to use. And then that sort of demand signal will take you there. And and we've been fascinated at ACT. to watch over the last few years, even the simple stuff like robotic process automation is like the, the interest. There's so much enthusiasm across government about making use of these new technologies, which is really encouraging to see. So um, let's let, new ideas, innovation, another big buzzword in government today. You've been a champion about bringing new ideas and innovation into your role and into your agency. What are some necessary steps to be successful at introducing innovative solutions in government and then making sure that they stick? I'd say one of the things that I've been most excited and proud of in my government career is that new ideas flow everywhere. Uh, and, and new ideas really start from the field where you know, technology and the mission is being you know, used and it meets together the most frequently is, is meeting at the missions in the field. So what we need to do is get those ideas from the field, from the users, back into corporate, back into a pipeline where we can make some actionable steps and it's not just an idea that fades away. I think the challenge is that a lot of times there are a lot of ideas that you have and there are a lot of users. It's, it's getting those ideas so that we can put them in a funnel and figure out how to get that back in. And, and I, what we're doing now is working with partners all around TSA to make sure that those ideas get into a pipeline and we start to ideate about them as a group. That becomes challenging, but with the right technology, we can collaborate at scale and say, well, I think this idea meets the priority and it meets the mission here. Let's put some investment to it and move forward. And, I, and I've seen that in, in, in the, my time here, and I'm very excited to see what will come from that. I, I love the idea of an innovation pipeline. Um, it, it's such an important way to, to get like the list of possibilities first and then, and then hone in through your ideation process. And, uh, and, and you said collaborated scale, which I just thought was awesome. I, th I think, you know, this whole idea about we don't have to, like have a few people like off on their own trying to figure out what the next best thing is. If we really wanted to be embraced by the many and make it stick, it's got, it's got to resonate with the people who are going to end up being the users of it. And so it sounds like a, a great recipe for success. Let's turn our attention to the workforce. What are some thoughts you'd like to offer on attracting and retaining the workforce of the future? Uh, be exciting. Uh, I think, you know, it, it becomes simple is that people want to work in a place where they're making an impact they're having a good time and they're good people around. You know, I fortunately landed in a place where that's happening. For us to accelerate and bring more folks in, it really is about continuing to do that and then market for that. When you're a mission partner, 
a lot of times the bad job we do is we don't market ourselves because we're we feel we're busy making making things happen uh it's important to tell folks that number one we are excited about the work we're doing we're excited to have people come help and it's actually cool and fun it, it, it there's nothing wrong with saying your job is cool and fun i like to say it all the time because that's what we want uh and so when you're doing all those things and you put it together i think what tends to happen is the workforce says well how can i do that too and, and as we're we're celebrating our successes they say how can i be a part of that and what's the next biggest challenge public service is cool and fun and uh, and you're right and we don't often promote it enough I, I i you know i found in my many years in government that the leadership opportunities that i had far ex, you know at a lower point in my career younger age there's a fabulous opportunities to make a profound difference on really big scale that that you really don't see many other places and so uh, Footnote to all the old people in the audience considering jobs in government. <laughs> Come work for someone like Yemi. You won't be disappointed for even a minute. Um, that said, large organizations, both public sector and private sector, can suffer from low trust environments. And, and low trust, you know, really puts a drag on the system in terms of time and expense to get things done. And, and, and also a lack of willingness to embrace change. And so um, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about change and maybe share with the audience some of the techniques that you've used to help your organization both build trust, but, but then to embrace change rather than sort of be reluctant to change. Yeah, I think, you know, trust in, in its basic form comes from a few things is you have to be familiar with the team that you're trusting. And no one can walk in a room on day one and everyone say, we're going to work together because they don't know each other. They can't anticipate what you're thinking. They also don't know what you're here for. So there, there's a time period where you have to be intentional about building trust, intentional about getting to know folks, and intentional about really understanding what they've done in the past and what they're trying to do. As you have that communication and you understand each other, then it's really being clear about what you intend to do. Clarity is probably one of the biggest components of trust as well, because if you have clarity in your direction and clarity in what you're trying to do, then folks can give you feedback on what they feel they understand, and maybe they have a different thought about it. So then you go from that point to a collective vision and a collective approach. And once you're there, you know, more times than not, there'll be a couple pitfalls. You recover from that. There'll be disagreements. You recover from that. And that is trust building in process. Over time, you understand that I know where he or she's coming from. I know their intention and I know what we're, we're set out to do together. And then trust starts to come from that. You also have to embrace the thought that you can fail. And, and we say it all the time, fail forward. You have to have, um, you don't have to be fearful of failing, but it's really, really embracing when something doesn't go your way and the pivot is easy. It, you don't want to walk in a room and say, well, we spent a million dollars and we lost it. it. It's about, I think we learned a lot from that. Now what's next? And you have to be able to say that and people have to believe you. And that's where trust gets built. Let's do a lightning round and say, you know, over the course of your career, you've witnessed so much change in the marketplace. Yeah. What's one change that you've witnessed in the federal marketplace that's, that's, I'll say, been profound for you? And then what's one thing that stayed the same throughout that whole <laughs> career in the, in, the, in the technology business? Uh Quite honestly, and it probably sounds cliche, but agile, I mean, everyone says it, but I think we say it and don't understand the profoundness of it. Being able to pivot, uh, being able to take failure, being able to, to use 
other components to support agile, like the whole cloud process was because when we started developing an agile infrastructure couldn't keep up. So it would profoundly change the way we looked at things. It, it was massive because it didn't just happen in IT, then it started happening in marketing. Then it started happening in, in, in how we do policy. So as you, be, you, you proliferated agile, it changed the way we thought about doing things. And you know now you you're walking in, in, in a meeting with attorneys, and if they say MVP, you know you say, "Wow, that that was massive." Because now people think, "How do I get something out first to get feedback instead of trying to do this large effort that's going to take us a year to do and we don't get there?" Very good. We've got about a minute left. Uh, you've been an outstanding leader throughout your career. You've made a profound difference both in government, but also in the lives of the people that you taken under your wing and helped a mentor. What's some parting leadership advice you'd like to offer the audience of government and industry leaders? Uh, I, I would say, first of all, you don't know any, everything and you never will. So get help. <laughs> I, I have a coach and, uh, you know, it doesn't matter to what echelon you get to. Uh, having a coach is great. And these positions, if you're looking to be in a position like a CIO or, or, or something at that C-level, uh, we carry the voice of our people. So it's quite important to be invested in what is being done by the staff and making sure you understand that. And then be clear about direction. Be clear, be open, be honest. Uh, and everything will work out at that way. Because once you're doing that, you build trust. And then you'll be able to uh, distill, you know, kind of the ideas, the feedback and support you get from your team. And uh, last thing is love what you do. Because if you don't, you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> Perfect place to end it. Yemi Oshinaye is the CIO at the Transportation Security Administration. Yemi, thank you so much for your leadership, your commitment to public service, and for taking the time to be on the show today. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Paul Strasser. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with act I'm Dave Wintergren, and on today's episode, we're talking with some of the recipients of the 2023 act Executive Leadership Awards. On this segment, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by an outstanding leader and longtime friend. Paul Strasser is a longtime industry leader, currently the Managing Client Executive for Transactional Businesses at Deepwater Point and Associates, and former Chair of the Industry Advisory Council. Paul, congratulations on receiving the 2023 act Industry Executive Leadership Award bestowed in the spirit of Janice K. Mendenhall, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on the show, Paul, and there's so much I want to ask you about. Let's start with a commitment to collaboration, which is one of the keystones that's called out in the Mendenhall Award. Why do you and why should other federal leaders, despite their extremely busy schedules, take the time to give back to the community through the work of good government organizations like act -IAC. Yeah, you know, at the highest level, a commitment to collaboration promotes communications, understanding, and innovation among government and industry leaders. And that leads to be the best mission outcomes for our citizens in our country. So for many years, I've been an advocate of, of good communication so that we can achieve the best outcomes for the country. You know, that includes many things uh, from an economic perspective or a, a homeland security perspective, from the, the perspectives of health, the rule of law, and many others. So uh, without these forums, there's a tendency for people to be isolated and stuck in stovepipes of thinking and doing. And so the more we can discuss these things, the better we're going to have outcomes. 
that's such an important point. The uh, sort of the echo chambers of uh, how we get our news and and who we listen to and stuff is, is so you know so thwarts coming up with new ideas and new approaches and, and that idea of bringing people together just makes a profound difference. You've had an amazing career in the federal technology market. Let's take a few minutes and reflect back on it for a moment. Let's think about, uh, share with us some of your highlights of your career and where that journey has taken you. Yeah, thanks. This is an easy topic for me to talk about, and I probably could go on way too long about it. But yeah, almost 40 years or about 40 years in, in the federal business. It's interesting. I actually started in the space business and worked for Lockheed Missiles in Space in the early 80s. I was a part of the very first mission control team for global positioning satellites before we would knew that GPS would work. Uh, and of course, it's ubiquitous in everything we do these days. Uh, so it's amazing to see how technology uh, has impacted our lives and the things that I've been involved in. Uh, but but even in those early 80s, I, I worked with pretty much all the military on-orbit platforms. I was working with the space shuttle for any of their military deployments of payloads out of the shuttle bay. Um, I was involved in the first anti-satellite weapon launched from an F-16, which was amazing. Uh, and it was a direct hit on the first try. Uh, and it it, uh, it blew into many pieces an old friend of mine, the satellite that we call 2265. So um, anyway, yeah, it was, it, was, it was really interesting. I even worked on the Reagan Star Wars initiatives uh, and this for satellite command and control because we were going to have so many satellites up there. But uh, around the uh, late, uh, mid to late, 90s, I was asked to move to the East Coast uh, as part of a promotion. And so then I started getting more and more involved with the federal civilian side of the house. But early in the 2000s was an interesting time because I had people in the Pentagon uh, on 9-11. And I'll never forget that day of trying to account for those people. Along with the Challenger accident, being in the space business, and then 9-11 being a part of uh, the Department of Defense, you know, these are big things that shape the way we think. And and as I look through my career, I'm, I'm reminded of these big uh, changes that uh, events that happened to change our lives. What was weird was that at the same time that 9-11 was happening, we had won the award to develop the first uh, state portal for Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And so I was going up to Boston every two weeks to meet with the CIO up there. And, uh, and of course, uh, Reagan Airport was empty because of all the heightened security around 9-11. I also worked on uh, and led an RCERT team for the DOD protecting zipper and nipper nets for, from cyber attacks, and even worked back then to keep banking systems safe uh, at the FDIC uh, from systemic risks. Having progressed into senior management, I supported many DHS programs, including US Visit, had teams supporting the response of the cyber breach in the Pentagon in 2008, and later led the assessment of cybersecurity risks for the first all-digital nuclear reactor in the United States. Mostly, as I reflect back and remember that, uh, with admiration, are the many dedicated contractors and civil servants that work tirelessly to support our country. So really, for me, it's always about the people and how people uh, rally for the mission, especially when we're, our backs are up against the wall like it was in some of those major events. I'm so glad you ended on that note because, you know, it's such a key tenet of leadership that as we start our careers, it's our technical skills and our, 
you know, analytical skills that, that make us successful. And then we transition to these positions of leadership where it becomes all about people. And, uh, and, and like you, my fondest memories on the journey so far have been the outstanding people I've gotten to serve with and work beside. You have had like an amazing career and been involved in so many things. And I'm just delighted that I've known you for a big chunk of that career. And our adventures have traversed all the way back to many years of ACT-IAC related work, but also um, Committee for National Security Systems and DOD work too. And so it's just great to see this continuing fabulous career being recognized. And so let's have a little fun now. You've witnessed and participated in so many big issues over the years. What are some of the biggest changes that you've witnessed in the federal technology market over the course of your career? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, question. You know, one of the things that I think is somewhat amazing is I remember one of my uh, bosses saying about 25 years ago, uh, we're not going to go chase after IDIQ contracts those are just, you know, those are worthless. Uh, we don't make any money on those. And of course, about a year or two later, IDIQ vehicles really started to take off. And, and nowadays, you, you know, you, as a business person, you can't live without them. So it's really the advent of IDIQ contracts and GWACs in the business of government and how you have to be a part of those in order uh, for you to, to sort of connect with the different agencies and help them with their missions. Another area that gained uh, momentum almost 15 years ago now was to put more of the award decision in the hands of the procurement and contracting folks. Uh, And to me, it sort of diminished the role of some of the mission and program decision makers. And I think that was really an important point because I think with that, I think it's been harder and harder to differentiate our capabilities from uh, innovation and technology perspective. And a lot of times it seems to come down more to cost. And uh, I think that's something that we should be wary of. Uh, From a systems development and integration perspective, I think it's the move from centralized computing to client server to cloud computing and the changes that we've been through with that. Uh, The adoption of low-code platforms for IT modernization and moving from waterfall uh, development to agile and DevSecOps. So for me, those are some of the highlights. That's a great list. And, uh, and, you know, I'm fascinated by the whole sort of what's happened in the contracting business in government. There's been so many consolidations over the years and, uh, and you know, the retirement of so many people. And as you point out, that the, sometimes your contracting shop might not have any organizational relationship to the program management team that's responsible for the delivery of the services. And so it's easy to have that disconnect about being focused on the outcome of the contract rather than, you know, just getting the paperwork done. A lot has changed in the market obviously, but perhaps some things have remained the same. And so what's, what's like an issue or challenge has remained the same throughout the course of your career? Yeah, I think the biggest one is, you know, the focus uh, and the need for computer and information security. Uh, you know, I've witnessed firsthand the way the internet made computing better and more pervasive, but also how it set us back from a risk and cybersecurity perspective. We must be really careful moving forward not to make these same kind of mistakes, uh, such as as we roll out artificial intelligence. Um, I think another area that that seems to, it's gotten maybe a little better, but it's this area of change management. And so you often hear people say that it's not, the technology is not the problem. uh, And and it's usually about the issue of, you know, it's not about the issue of developing, deploying the applications for the mission systems. It's actually leading the people in the organization through the change and the adoption and getting folks to see the advantages without worrying about how it affects them 
personally. It, you know, there's the old adage about it, it would be easy if it wasn't for people having to be involved, but, uh, but you're, you're spot on. And, and with the pace of change so relentless, pace of technology advancement so relentless, you know, we're in a sort of a constant state of change. And so it just makes it harder and harder for people, particularly when the large percentage of people are probably change neutral or change adverse at best, to, to constantly be in, in the throes of trying to embrace cultural change. Uh, we're going to take a short break now. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation with Paul Strasser, Managing Client Executive for Transitional Businesses at Deepwater Point and Associates and recipient of the 2023 ACDIAC Industry Executive Leadership Award. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACDIAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACDIAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wintergren, and we're talking with Paul Strasser, Managing Client Executive for Transitional Businesses at Deepwater Point and Associates, and former chair of the Industry Advisory Council, amongst many other luminary jobs and titles that Paul has held in the past. But we're particularly interested today in noting that Paul is the recipient of the 2023 ACT-IAC Industry Executive Leadership Award, bestowed in the spirit of Janice K. Mendenhall. As we were going to break, we were talking about changes in the market. And, uh, and you know, change is hard. But I'm wondering, as you know, from the standpoint of all the leadership roles that you've had in organizations, you sort of had a unique vantage point in the market. And I'm wondering if maybe you could share with the audience some of the recipes for success that you've seen for government and industry working together to deliver technology solutions in changing times. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. I, you know, I think in the end, the first thing I will say is it comes down to people. Um, and people on both sides of, of the place here, you know, the government and industry folks, as we work together to build new systems and capabilities for the country. Um, so with that said, I think communications, uh, a key for me was always communications must occur early and often, and we must connect at different levels. So I always made it a point to try to connect at an executive level if I was sitting in an executive chair or at a lower level if I was sitting in, in, in a different chair. Uh, but but having real conversation and making sure that we were trying to address risks early and 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 talk through you know how we're going to get there. Another area is uh, to be open and transparent. If there are risks, don't hold back. You know, a problem doesn't get better with time. So let's make sure we're being open, and that works both ways too. I think sometimes I I find that. Um, you know, maybe a government leader doesn't want to give you all the information uh, about about what's going on. And so the more we share uh, in totality the, the, you know, what's going on in the environment, I think the better able we'll be uh, to be successful in whatever we're up to. Um, a third item is that I really believe that the government should seek best value and identify ways to make that happen. Uh, because the move to what I would call uh, low-cost, technically acceptable contracting, I think it hurts uh, the industry. I think it makes outcomes sometimes not as uh, successful, and uh, and I think that's bad for everybody. So I think we always got to seek better ways to evaluate and get to a best value decision. Uh, and finally, uh, really to be open to taking some risks and to be creative and innovative in the things we do, and to share that with your government people. In other words, uh, we, I always like to have people write white papers, you know, especially early in the calendar year, 
so that we can share what we think and, and how we might be able to move this program forward, even if it isn't, you know, sort of really spelled out in a statement of work, you know, how do we keep our government people looking forward uh, down the road um, instead of just kind of focused on the work at hand? Uh, and I would say that most times I've visited with government customers, that would be the one area they, that they really were appreciative of uh, over other contractors. It's such a great list of, uh, you know, recipe for success ideas around people first, relentless communication, risk management. When you when you got to the point about best value versus low price, technically acceptable, I, you know, it, it resonated with me because the, the vast majority of the federal technology budget ends up in the hands of the private sector. And so we can either have huge successes by using contracting best practices that allow companies to bring their innovative game and their best practices from the from commercial implementations, let's say, or we can hamper our adoption of new technologies by how we ask for things. And having been in the contracting business for so long, wondering if you'd like to pile on to the best value advice with any other advice about best practices of contracting in the federal market that that you know our audience of government and industry technology leaders should be having top of mind? Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, companies spend a lot of their time trying to uh, differentiate and and to create solutions that are going to be successful. And so, you know, I think, I think again, that's, that's a good focus because, uh, you know, there are so many Me Too companies out there that, uh, and I think sometimes to the government, we all look the same. So anytime you can differentiate and discriminate yourself from the pack, to be creative and innovative and to put those ideas forward, uh, I think is important. And, and, I, and, I, and I hope that the government, uh, you know, continues to be uh, on the lookout for that uh, because I think those are the companies that are truly going to make the best partners as we move forward. Yeah. And, you know, as you and I have talked about many times before, you know, do you value alternative proposals? Do you encourage innovation and new ideas and in the, in the way that you ask for things, do you use like statements of objectives rather than rigid statements of work? There's so many ways to help encourage ideation and bringing in new ideas rather than limiting the aperture. And so I think that's some great advice. So we talked a little bit about the contracting process, but, you know, a healthy government contracting community, it also requires us all to be focused on the same set of ideas and, and topics. And so as you look out at the marketplace, what are some trends and challenges and opportunities that you're seeing in the federal technology market that you would recommend companies keep an eye on in the year ahead? Yeah, I, I'm always worried about, you know, these challenges. And, and some of these are beyond sort of our control and, and most of the career folks in government. But it's it's the challenge around around getting budget decisions made and accomplished on a timely fashion by Congress and how that impacts everything we do um, and getting things done. I, I think, you know, when you look at major platforms like weapons platforms, like, a, like the joint strike fighter or something, every time we delay and change the budget and, and pull money back or put money forward or, you know, and having people replan these very complex systems, I, I just think leads to uh, more expenditures and, and delays. So I'm always very concerned uh, of the, uh, of that and the overall workload and size of the contracting workforce to get things done. Because in the past, when we tended to get budgets done more timely, uh, you know, we had about a year to sort of get that money into the hands of the contractors to get things done. But nowadays, now all that spending has to occur in a much shorter time frame, maybe six months. Uh, and it's being done with less and less contracting, warranted contracting folks. Uh, and so I, I worry about their workload and uh, and their ability to get things done. And, and we see it day in and day out 
Uh, so, so that's a big area of concern. Another one uh, is, and it's sort of related, but as we get into deficit reduction, which I think is probably on the horizon, um, you know, I, I don't want to return back to where we've been before with the uh, Budget Control and Reduction Act or sequestration. The ideas that have been put forward around concepts like the Technology Modernization Fund, these are good ideas that allow us to improve the systems and modernize them, create better security around them, but at the same time to do it in a way where we're going to save money in the future. And we've got to come up with these new models and paradigms uh, because just cutting costs is, is never a way to be successful. And so I, I hope that, that that's, that's an area that people are focused on. As far as trends go, I think AI is the biggie. Um, I think we must ensure that we plan it properly. And I think there's a lot of effort going into that now. Recently, uh, you know, the uh, OMB and the president released their new uh, information and their new plan. Um, but we need to create policies and regulation and get that out well ahead of implementation. And I'm afraid that we're already starting to implement things for AI. And I just worry about just being careful. And I think we all want to be careful, uh, but, but you know, sometimes there'll be bad behavior. So we have to be careful, uh, just like the Internet. We, we went very fast, and then we realized we had a security risk on our hands. So we need to avoid those kinds of things. Um, and I think, uh, I think another one is, you know, related to that is a lot of contractors today are looking to deploy AI to help them respond to RFIs, requests for information, and requests for proposals. So, you know, you know, how does the government look at that? You know, how are they going to regulate that activity? This is a big deal right now. To me, it's similar to, you know, when your kids are using AI to do their homework. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Maybe it's maybe it's not a bad thing. Maybe maybe there's some goodness in there, too. But but we need to have these things put forward because a lot of companies are already moving to have initial responses for their proposals written by AI. And I, I, and I think that also is going to be a limiting factor in who wins and who loses. And although it's being innovative, it may lead to the same kind of responses over and over again. So, so anyway, I just, that's, a, that's a, both a trend and a, and a challenge moving forward. I, you hit on so many great things in that, and you know, I appreciate you bringing back up the deficit reduction and sequestration because you're right. We are about to enter a time when we're going to start talking about that again, and we have to remind ourselves about the need to invest in the future. So we've got about like 30 seconds left or so. I would love to give you the last word. So maybe why don't you we close with since mentoring has been so important to you over the years, what's some parting leadership advice that you'd like to offer the audience? Yeah, it's all about people. We're in the services business. Can't get anything done without people. Creating a winning people-based culture, to me, has always been job one. And it's got to promote collaboration, diversity, individual competency, and foster continuous learning. There needs to be rewards and recognition for performance. I read a book called The Orange Revolution a while back and helped me to realize that I wanted to be on a team where everybody was cheering for each other and patting each other on the back and high-fiving. And that's the kind of culture I wanted to have at the companies that I was participating in. So today, for me, for everyone, focus on the people. Take care of your people. And let's, let's do this together. Paul Strasser is the Managing Client Executive for Transitional Businesses at Deepwater Point & Associates. Paul, thank you for your leadership, your commitment to the market, 
and for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about ActiX Executive Leadership Awards, check out the Federal News Network website or go to our website, www.actiac.org. I'm Dave Wenergren, and you've been listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ActiX on Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Accelerating Government with ActiAC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Accelerating Government on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.